0: Stephanie Warner is a Midwest cancer survivor and thriver with 20 years of nursing experience and four years of surviving cancer behind her. She brings compassion and support to help others through value-based teaching and mentoring. She shows others how to embrace their strength and thrive in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. And um, that was um, very, very, very kind of you to introduce me in that way. And like I said, thank you for having me. I'm excited to share my story and hopefully um, if it benefits anybody, that is ultimately my goal of of this today, so. Well, I know it's gonna benefit a lot of people. Um, So I want you to take us back. I know it wasn't that long ago and um, tell us how and when did your cancer journey begin? So my cancer story started in 2016. I was 34 years old at the time and I went into my regular um, physician's office. And at the time I actually just needed a birth control refill. It was an annual exam that typically you can go in for and while I was there, it was a new provider that I had never seen before. We had a great discussion. She was, went ahead and filled my prescription at the time. Knowing that I didn't have any history or any complications previously prior to that time, she said, you know, we're gonna forego an exam today. Um, I'll see you in three years. Like everything has always looked well. So I'll see you in three years and we had a great discussion. Um, I thought that that was acceptable. I thought that was really good at the time. I think that the most wonderful thing about the story is that as she was leaving, she had her hand on the door and she stopped before she walked out of the room and she looked back at me and she said, Stephanie, since this is the first time that I'm seeing you, you know what, let's just go ahead. And let's just do an exam. Everything will be fine. I'll see you in three years and we'll move forward. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Not a big deal. So we went ahead, we did an exam. And within two weeks, I received a phone call that said, I'm sorry, but we've we found something on your exam. Your results came back and it's suspicious. And so we kind of need to move further into what this looks like. I said, okay, I would actually, I took that phone call while I was at the gym. I recognized the number was from the clinic. So I kind of shuffled myself into like the shower area to take this phone call to receive it. And so when I was in that moment and received that call, there was an intense fear that kind of came over me like, okay, what does this mean? You know, what are we, what are we looking at here? And at that time, The provider said, this is something that we're going to have to refer you to another specialty for. And I said, okay, well, what specialty are we going to get referred to? And they said, we're going to have to send you to an oncologist. Would you like to go to Mayo Clinic or the University of Minnesota? I live in, I live in a small town in Waterville, Minnesota. So it's about an hour South of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And it's about an hour northwest of Rochester, Minnesota, which is where Mayo is for people who don't. Which is where Mayo Clinic is. Yeah. So I was about an hour in between both facilities, and um, at the time, I chose to further my care at the University of Minnesota. When you went to that appointment by annual Mm -hmm. exam, you're you're talking about your annual pelvic exam from a gynecologist, correct? correct? Yeah. Just to, just to make sure I'm not sure the men can keep up. So (laughs) just to make clear. (laughs) And, um, and so at that time, did they just, you know, did they do any tissue during that pelvic exam or blood work or what, what did they do that Mm -hmm. they even knew there was something suspicious? Do you know? Yeah. So they did a regular pap smear exam. And that is where it was detected was on my pap smear exam. Mm. Um, We didn't do any blood work until later down into my cancer journey. Yeah. So that's kind of where we, that's kind of where we started off. Once that appointment was made at the university, that's when things, the ball really started getting rolling of what, what are we going to do next? So I met with my oncologist for the first time they, you know, set up. oncology appointment. I went up there and at that time, you know, they said we were going to have to take a few more tests to really figure out what's going on here. So we scheduled a surgery that was going to basically go ahead and get a larger sample, a larger tissue sample. They were concerned specifically about the cervical area and the uterine area. Got it. My cancer after my first surgery it was diagnosed as stage 1 b1 cervical cancer so i had a tumor that was at the bottom of my cervix and at the top of my uterus got it so kind of in the in the connecting um, location that was um very difficult to hear so I'm gonna back up a little bit here. Go oh, ahead, yeah, no, please. So please. as I go, as I, yeah, sure. So as I was um, meeting with the doctor the first time and she said, okay, we need to put together a plan. We're gonna to have to move forward with this first surgery to, to determine what type of cancer you have. So we, I went in for the surgery. It wasn't very long. Um, they went in and took a larger actual piece of tissue from that location. And it was a pretty good week in between before I heard anything back, and so during that time, it just gets very. I I think the thing that was really really difficult for me is not knowing. There was an overwhelming sense of fear. Um, what does this look like? What does this mean? Um, I I found that I could I could easily go down rabbit holes. <laughs> without knowing very much information. I would say that's one thing I've learned about cancer is especially at the beginning is you don't know anything until you know everything, all the pieces. Um, So we came back, we visited after that first initial surgery and that's when she diagnosed me again with stage one B1 cervical cancer. What does that look like? That diagnosis was really hard. I remember sitting in the chair with her and she gave me that diagnosis and we talked about additional steps that we were gonna to have to take. And when I say additional steps, that means um, we were gonna to have to go through with MRIs, PET scans to see if there was any other um, locations of this cancer because at, also with that diagnosis, she had determined that I had um, adenocarcinoma. Adenocarcinoma is a glandular cancer. So typically a lot of times in cervical cancer, there can be a squamous cell um, type of a cancer, which is very focal. It's very localized to one place. With an adenocarcinoma, it's a glandular cancer that can have tumors in multiple or different locations, which makes it a little more difficult. Um, So in that, in that case, we had to go ahead and do a PET scan and an MRI. Both were very difficult to go through. It was um, kind of in the early, early um, beginning of summer here. And there was the, the PET scan they had pulled up to the actual um, hospital. So they make you drink. It's like a sugary substance. And I remember sitting in the chair waiting my turn to go in for this PET scan after I had drank the stuff and I was sitting there for an hour and I was so sick. I was just so sick. I felt extremely nauseous, um, very scared, very fearful. And um, going through the PET scan was just terrifying because you just don't know what those results are going to be. And you just kind of feel like you're in limbo for so much of that time waiting for these results to come back. Stephanie, can you tell me, what was the, the time span between the, that call you got that something was wrong and the news from the oncologist that you did indeed have cancer? So the time frame from the time that I got the initial first call that I had to make the decision to either go to the university or to Mayo Clinic was it was about three weeks before I was able to establish an, uh, an initial appointment with the oncologist. After each time that I had testing, it was usually two weeks in between. And what about your support system? Because I haven't heard you mention anyone. So um, at the time I initially kept things very quiet because I, I really didn't know a lot about what was gonna happen and what was going on. Right away when I found out I went right to my family, had a conversation, um, with my dad, um, my stepmother and each of my siblings. Um, I have some very, very close, uh, friends of mine that I also asked for support, um, and, and love so much love and support from them. Uh, they were extremely, um, helpful in helping me navigate through some of these situations. I would honestly say that the hardest part um, about going through those long stretches of time is just the emotional aspect, the things that start to unravel inside of you, the fear, and to have that support and have people there saying, what are your needs? What are your needs today? And, And that's something that I learned is that there are so many people willing to support you. And also something I learned is how to ask for support, how to ask for my needs, because honestly, like going through it, I didn't know what I needed. Sometimes I didn't even know what I needed or, um, what was coming. Like it, it's so overwhelming with the diagnosis right away. And there's so much information and it's hard to unpack and unprocess a lot of those things. And so to have friends and family come in and say, what do you need today? Was really helpful for me to think about, yeah, what do I need today? What am I needing to get through this? How can they best support me? And how can I allow them in to see what I'm actually experiencing? They may not understand it at the same level, but how can I best... Have them help me meet my needs. So oh, I think that's beautiful. That definitely something that I had to learn, and initially that was very, very difficult for me, just because there was there was so much unknown at the time. What were the results? Let's circle back of of that MRI and and PET scan. I mean, w- was there more cancer in other parts of your body? Yeah, thankfully um, the MRI scan definitely showed the actual area of cancer. My tumor was located to one area. My PET scan came out that I had um, an unidentified lesion on one of my lungs. It was it was a small one. They weren't concerned about it. Um, something they're gonna watch. Um, if at any time, like I developed symptoms, respiratory type symptoms, they would kind of go into it further. But at the time it was, it's been small enough to where it hasn't been a, of an issue or a concern. So after the PET scan, all these results came back. I met with my oncologist again, And it's time to talk prognosis. What does this mean? Where are we going to go from here? Thankfully, the PET scan showed that it hadn't spread to any place else. So that meant I was out of the woods for chemo and radiation. I was so thankful, so thankful that I was out of that. However, my tumor size was at its maximum size to... Have to make a decision on surgery. The surgery procedure was going to be a radical procedure that would remove everything. And when I say remove everything, I think the hardest part for me about that was that that was going to eliminate my chance of carrying a pregnancy. Did you have any children yet? I did not have any children. I still do not have any children. Um, I wanted children. So I I felt like that choice was made for me, and I didn't really get to make that choice. If I don't do the surgery, then my cancer is going to progress. I will go to chemo. I will go to radiation. And I knew that if, if I was going to do chemo and radiation, that I still wouldn't be able to have a child at that time. I knew that if I had the surgery, I was not going to be able to carry my own child. So emotionally, that was extremely difficult for me to hear. I didn't know what that meant on right right away. I just remember feeling like as a woman, that like to to feel like the parts of you that um, pr- produce a child or have a child were that that it was just gone. like I, I don't feel like a whole woman. This means that so many things are gonna change. And mentally I knew that wasn't true, but emotionally it was it felt um, extremely hard to navigate. extremely hard to navigate. Um, so at the time we we scheduled the surgery and that wasn't long. It was from the time that we met and she said, "This is where we're going to have to move forward with with this procedure." I said, "Okay, what does this procedure look like?" It was five hours of a surgery. They were going to remove um, lymph nodes. They were going to remove the cervix. They were going to remove the uterus. They were going to remove the ligaments and the surrounding peritoneal tissue. So it's a very big surgery. Did they remove your ovaries as well? At my age, thankfully, at the age of 34, we were able to keep the ovaries. So that would hold me off from um, menopause for some time, which thankfully, because the PET scan showed that it, you know, I didn't have anything that was metastasizing into my ovaries, that we were safe to keep those. Um, initially during the surgery, they remove the lymph nodes first. It gets sent off for what's called called a frozen section. The pathologist reads those lymph nodes right away to see if there is any metastasis in the lymph nodes. And if at that time they recognized any cancer in the lymph nodes, surgery would stop. And then I would immediately have to go in for chemo and radiation. They wouldn't be able to proceed with the surgery. Thankfully those lymph nodes came back okay. And so they did proceed with the surgery. I actually did not sign the consent form until the morning of surgery because it was just so painful for me to come to that realization, to come to the decision that I was going to have to do something that in my heart, I never wanted to do. I never wanted to do it, it was very difficult. Um, I just remember thinking, if I don't do this, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to live. It was giving this up. I remember, you know, and I I remember thinking and pleading with my doctor, well, what if I just, what if I get pregnant right now? And then I do the surgery in a year, you know, like you, these are emotions that you wrestle with inside yourself. Like, you know, and you allow yourself to think of the possibilities and that wasn't a possibility. She, she was so very kind hearted in letting me know, like, we have to do something right away. We can't. And I even, one of my favorite holidays is the 4th of July. And um, (laughs) she, I said, well, can we just wait till after 4th of July to do the surgery? Because I really just want to enjoy the 4th of July and then I'll come back and I'll go ahead and do the surgery. And no, (laughs) no, we can't do that either. And, you know, so it's these, these things like these bargaining aspects, you know, Mm. this bargaining. that, do during this time because which is a stage of grief was there any discussion about harvesting your eggs at all so at the time that was another discussion is that what does that look like for me where where am I going to move forward with that and typically depending on the location the size of the tumor those all the circumstances that can um surround a situation like that sometimes they will allow patients to do an egg removal or an egg egg extraction prior to having the surgery. But my tumor was the size that it was that I wasn't able to do that prior to surgery. Um, So it it came to the day of surgery and I came there and I remember laying in the preoperative area and they said, okay, we, we have to have you sign the consent form. And I remember thinking like, but do I really, do I, really do I really, do I really have to, and just, um, overwhelming amount of tears, a lot of grief, right? a lot, a lot of grief going in. The surgery was successful. It went very well. Um, I came out of recovery and I was, (laughs) I was in a lot of pain afterwards and they ended up having to give me a, an abdominal block because I just was having too much, uh, a lot of pain in the actual port um, areas that they did the surgery. And so after the block, they, they said, you know, your pain doesn't seem to be improving. We would like to keep you overnight. Being a nurse for 20 years, um, I knew my own body and I trusted myself. And they said, well, we'd like to keep you, but our, our, our hospital is also full. So what this means is we would keep you in our recovery area overnight, manage your pain, and then we can send you home tomorrow. And I was very stubborn. And I said, uh, no, I'm gonna go home. <laughs> I'm gonna go home uh, because I felt at that time if I was gonna feel that much pain and just be in that much grief and being that much discomfort, I really wanted to be in the comfort of my own home and do it there. So thankfully my doctor was uh, very kind in my needs at that time and she allowed me to go home. And um, I had Round the clock here for the first week, I was very unable to kind of get myself um, in the shower. I had a really difficult time getting in and out of bed. I had a catheter for the first seven days um, that I had to tend to, and that went okay. I felt like that was a, a, you know, um, easy to navigate, but the everyday things of just being able to brush my hair Um, take a shower, take a shower, put my own clothes on. Like I said, getting in and out of bed, I had a difficult time even walking very far without having a lot of pain. I do relate in that not, I have not had cancer, but I put off having a full hysterectomy ovaries, everything, all of it gone for more than a year, um, because of severe endometriosis that apparently i had for you know decades but didn't get diagnosed until my early 40s quite by accident and it just got to the point where my cycles were so beyond painful even and i have a mm. high pain tolerance and all of the other options were just treating the symptom they weren't solving the problem which you know I'm, i i want to solve the problem and i kept putting it off and not because I, I was already in my forties, not because I wanted to have children. I had already raised an amazing child. Um, my sister, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, my story and i had actually had my tubes tied years ago. So it wasn't that, but I had a huge fear of having the surgery and, Mm -hmm. and having, yeah, what, what I felt like was a part of, of being a woman taken away, Mm -hmm. um, a pretty integral part of my body (laughs) taken away and also being thrust into surgical menopause immediately. Mm -hmm. And, um, it took, it took me a year from the time that the conversation was first brought up until I finally went, okay. And, and then once I made that decision, I said to my doctor, okay, well, we, now we have to do it before the year's up because I've paid my entire deductible. So (laughs) (laughs) now I can afford it. So we have to do it. Um, Uh, and I, it was better than I thought it was going to be the recovery, mm -hmm. surprisingly better. Um, and, and I'm so grateful I I did do it. Um, but, um, it was a big decision. So I, I, I I really admire your honesty. Um, I can't imagine having to make that decision knowing that you wanted children and Mm -hmm. having not had any children yet. Um, and, and not being able to save your eggs. Um, that, that's a very, very tough decision to make. That part gets better. <laughs> oh, good. Egg, oh, well. The egg part. There's more. <laughs> oh, yay. Okay. Well, okay. So tell us the egg part. But I also want to hear, I mean, you are a nurse. Mm-hmm. So how do you think being a nurse shaped your cancer experience? You know, how do you think yeah. it? made a difference? Because everything you've said so far are very similar to other people in terms of the fear you had and the waiting and the going down the rabbit holes. So how did being a nurse make it different if it did? It's interesting to me because I was able to understand so much of the medical jargon. I was able to understand the testing. I was able to understand and receive the feedback. And all of those things made sense for me. But when I was on the opposite side, the opposite end of it, I was really able to see what it was like for some of these patients in that situation, because it is different when it's you instead of when it's your patient. To be honest, like I grew such an even more amount of compassion and kindness and empathy to meet people at the most intimate times of their life. It made me realize and really put into perspective what it was like being on that other side. Even though I knew all the words, I knew what everything meant, it didn't make any of it any easier for me to go through the process of it, the grieving process, the recovery process, the emotional, physical, mental processes we're all still based on that patient aspect. I just had a little bit more knowledge. I I know an oncologist who who said the same thing, who was diagnosed with lymphoma, an oncologist said the exact same thing. You know, he knew the terminology, he knew the words, he knew the treatments. He even knew what was going to be recommended. He would have recommended the same thing, but um, he wasn't prepared for the emotions that came up for him. The perspective is so different. And, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because you don't really realize those emotional aspects, those emotional fears, the things that start coming up that you have to unpack through that process can be so much that if, if I feel like if you're not willing to kind of give some compassion and grace to yourself, it could be very easy to go to a place that um, could be very difficult to to get out of. Yeah. So I think that's where like having a really strong support system and people behind you that that love and genuinely care about you to really open up to them is, is very important during um, a cancer diagnosis and um, the timeline. So after I had my surgery, We um, progressed through that. Within two weeks, I developed lymphedema into my leg. I was a runner at the time, very, very active, very fit. Um, So I was able to kind of pick it up quicker. Um, What happened is I got an overload of fluid in my pelvis, abdominal area that spread down my leg. Can you explain a little more what that means like what it looks like for people who don't understand it so lymphedema is when there's excess fluid that goes into the lymph tissue so a lot of some of that can be because i just have this huge surgery um, a radical hysterectomy Um, they removed 27 lymph nodes in my pelvic area they removed some of the ligaments in my pelvic area and because of some of those lig that ligament removal, I did end up with some permanent um, numbness in my pelvis area. Um, wow! That wow. that I will have um, for the rest of my life. At the time, they tell you there are um, things that you can kind of do, like. Um, tactile sensation things, running like your hands against the skin to try to um, regenerate some of that nerve damage. But typically after one year, if it hasn't returned, you will remain with some of that nerve damage. So unfortunately I did have that as a complication of surgery. I I knew that going into it. um, And I've just accepted that as we, you know, as I've, move forward in my cancer journey. Like I said, mentioned, um, I noticed one day that my pelvic area and my leg was about twice to three times the size that it normally was. It was very painful. It was very achy. Um, my legs, my leg, it was only my right leg felt very, very heavy Um, I also had kind of like a, it looked like a rash starting that isn't very typical or common. That's just something that I experienced. Um, So I went in to my oncologist and I said, this is the trouble that I'm having. Um, This can be a side effect after having some lymph nodes removed. So she set me up to do lymph edema therapy. And lymphedema therapy is a specialized um, person that goes through some training and they were able what they would do is push fluid from the areas that were um, or from the areas that were twice the size, they would push that fluid and it would actually have to get regenerated. Through the left side of my body, they would push the fluid up into my armpit on the left side. And then that fluid get got recirculated back through my heart and then extract, extracted out through the kidneys and through urine. So that's how you kind of were able to remove the excess fluid. I did that three days a week for a year after my surgery. I also had trouble with my bowel and my bladder after surgery. Um, After having the hysterectomy, my bowel and my bladder were kind of in different locations. And so after having the surgery, I say you go through and your body adjusts to what the new normal is. The new normal, what does this feel like? Um, What I noticed about my bladder is that when I had to go to the bathroom, I had to go to the bathroom right now. There wasn't a lot of There wasn't a lot of time to wait. And that was kind of (laughs) different for me Being 34. I'm like, okay, I have to go right now. So this is what we're doing. Um, But then I also had a lot of pain. Um, What was happening is that the muscles that were surrounding my pelvis, since the ligaments were removed, the muscles that were surrounding my pelvis to provide strength in my, in my pelvis were responding to the surgery. And so I would have um, intense bladder spasms. I would have pain in my rectum at times. Um, After six weeks, I returned to work and I went to actually kind of um, squat down on the floor. I went to pick something up. And I remember the first time that I did that, I felt like my pelvis was gonna snap in half. It had no strength and it would start to spasm um, and cause a lot of problems, um, a lot of pain. So I spoke with my oncologist about it and I ended up doing pelvic th- pelvic floor therapy as well. And I cannot tell you how much gratitude and how thankful I am for these people who do pelvic floor therapy. They were a lifesaver for me. They not only did manual, um, manual therapy on my pelvic floor. They also taught me the tools and, and the resources and, and helped me be able to navigate when I was having that pain. They helped teach me how to address these issues when they came up. Um, and I will be very honest, it was very intimate. It, um, mm-hmm. it You really have to get up to, I had to get to a place in my mind that Even though it felt embarrassing for me, it it felt like there's like, oh, there's something wrong with me. They were so kind and so gentle and so wonderful in explaining what was happening and how we could make things better. Same for the lymphedema um, therapists. They're very specialized, very um, wonderful people in helping life be a lot better. I ended up receiving a machine that I wrap around my leg and around my pelvis area. So when I do have difficulty with um, nerve trouble, nerve, um, nerve pain, or if I start to develop swelling or a fluid buildup in those areas, I can use this machine that gets wrapped around my leg. And like I said, my pelvis, it gets plugged in and then it takes an hour long cycle that will push the fluid through my body thankfully being four years out, I haven't had to use it in the last year, but that also means that I've had to be very, very active. I've learned that if I've stayed very active, these things don't flare up as much. So I'm I'm very thankful for that. When it comes to the eggs, after my cancer um, surgery, I did not sleep for six months. I could not sleep at night. I would, um, wake up in the middle of the night. I, w- I, I had anxiety. Um, I just was not willing as a person to take that. I was not going to be able to do anything about it. I went to my doctor and I said, okay, it's six months. I haven't slept. I I'm a mess. <laughs> I have to do something about this. I can't let this just be it for me. This is not going to be it for me. This is I I will n- I will not forgive myself. The reason so, you weren't sleeping is because of this issue. The reason I wasn't sleeping is because of the thought of not being able to have the opportunity to have a child if I wanted to was something I wasn't willing to give up. So she gave me some resources of some places in the cities that dealt with fertility. I also found some resources through the Mayo Clinic and I decided that I was going to do egg retrieval. Now I looked at the affordability, I decided that I was gonna go through the Mayo Clinic Rochester and thankfully the Mayo Clinic Rochester had a program through the Livestrong Foundation for cancer patients and for women. And the hope that they provided me was just extremely, Wonderful. I I just lit up after I found them as a resource. So I contacted them, we went through a lot of paperwork and they said, based on your diagnosis, we are willing to contribute um, a large funding to your egg egg retrieval. So that meant, okay, I'm going to move forward with the Mayo Clinic. I went in for a fertility visit and The fertility doctor was wonderful. We went through and we had ultrasounds and after the first ultrasound came back and some blood work that they initially put you through, they came back to me and they said, I'm really sorry, Stephanie, the cancer has really taken a toll on your ovaries. If we are gonna move forward with this, we may or may not be able to retrieve enough for a pregnancy. We want you to be aware of this right away ultimately the decision is yours. What do you want to do? And I remember he he said to me, he goes, this is going to take a miracle. And I, I remember just feeling so strong at that time. When he said that to me, I, I, I remember looking him in the face and I said, I know myself, I trust myself and I'm doing this. They're going to help me with this money to help me with these injections. I'm going to cover the rest, but I'm moving forward with this and we're gonna do this. And he said, okay. So they put me on the highest dose of medication. I did injections for two weeks. During that time, I visited the Mayo Clinic. We followed my um, blood work. It was called the follicle stimulating hormone. And we had up our up-to-date ultrasounds at the time as well. So when it came to retrieval day, My ovaries got to both, both of them to the size of softballs and we went in for the retrieval and we came out of that retrieval and 13 eggs were, were able to be retrieved. 11 of them were viable. And he came back and he said, this is a miracle. This is such a miracle. He said, ultimately it takes a solid eight eggs to really have a great chance at uh, uh, one pregnancy. So I was able to retrieve 11 eggs that are frozen. And just knowing that I have that option was enough to change the trajectory of how I felt. I felt like there was still hope. And it was my decision. That decision was still there for me if I wanted it. And I think that made it a lot better feeling coming from a place of where I didn't really have much of a decision of the, of the surgery and what I had to do just, just to, to stay alive. Right. So this the an option and the choice. And I feel like that just gave me so much hope. It gave me so much hope. I'm really happy for you. So they're still frozen, right? They are still frozen. Good. What is the one thing, Stephanie, you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? The one thing I would say, I didn't realize how much it was going to change the trajectory of my life. Cancer, cancer brought my passion because, you know, to be honest, I was kind of just going through life. I was, I was living through life. I was, you know, working as a nurse. I had great friends. I have great family. Um, I, I loved a lot of all the aspects of my life, but cancer brought me my passion and I would have never thought going through something that was so incredibly painful, emotionally, mentally, physically was going to leap me into what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I had no idea that it was gonna bring me the opportunities that it has brought me. I really love that, I do. Um, And I can't wait to hear this from a healthcare provider if you could do only one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why? The one thing that I'm working diligently on now um, is changing the trajectory of healthcare, developing strategic plans to prevent things at the start of the cancer diagnosis. And what I mean by that is a lot of times people are diagnosed with cancer and then they go down these rabbit holes. And there's a lot that we can do right up front. From that time of diagnosis, there's a lot of information that we can provide people and patients with to allow them to have a better understanding of the progression of what is gonna continue. The resources that are available immediately, the coordination of care that we can provide them, the emotional support that we can give them. But to, to prevent some of those things that happened down the road, had they had that information and the resources and everything initially, we can prevent that. And I, I feel that um, that's a gap in the healthcare industry that can be closed in. It's one of the many gaps Cancer U is trying to fill for sure. All right, Stephanie, are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Yes. Okay. Beach, desert or mountains beach and mountains <laughs> so or they're, Oregon, they're, they're both so great <laughs> Oregon coast essentially um yeah beach boys Beatles, or rolling stones I have to go with beach boys and Beatles. they're right they're both similar for me what is one word that best describes you unique before you die what is the last song you want to hear Waymaker. The last meal you want to eat? Sushi. The last person you want to see? My husband. And the last words you will speak? I was blessed. And aside from Cancer you, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? I feel like there's a lot of resources out there. And I, I think, when you're going through cancer, there's a lot of resources there. And to just really embrace the struggles that you're going through and not give up and find those resources. They're out there. There's there's so many different foundations. There's so many different small organizations. There's so many different big organizations like American Cancer Society. There's a lot of them out there, but I think it's just really embracing that struggle and looking for them, going and looking for them and knowing that just because they're not right in front of you doesn't mean they're not there. And, and be, have those, have that dialogue with your doctor, have that dialogue with your doctor and saying, I need resources. Where, where can I find this information? Or what can I, what can I get? What's available for me? Because there's so much available for cancer patients. It, ultimately, I would love it if we could have one big mass, like one big place that we could all go and it would just be one, one resource, but working on it spread right out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think we'll definitely put live strong in, in the resources yes. for what they yes. did for you. Yeah. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with me mm-hmm. through just my email, it's S-T-E-P-H underscore W612 at yahoo.com or they can, actually, you know, I'm very open to phone calls as well. Um, I I love getting on and communicating with patients and, or patients or anyone who feels that they need support or they um, wanna talk further about anything cancer related. So my phone number is 507-380-5431. Um, those are the, probably the two best places to reach me. Other than that, I currently do not have a website, but I am working on things progressing down the road. So All right. those, those baby steps. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.